0: I'm back again after a nice break. You must be wondering, there's been no podcasts over the last few weeks. Uh, Actually, I was just about uh, having a holiday after a very long time, uh, relaxing, catching up on on domestic chores and recharging my batteries. Uh, I think we all need that. I didn't realize until I took this break that how important it is to slow down and switch off from work every now and then. And I tell you what, it's so easy to forget this one thing. Although I didn't travel, I didn't go anywhere, which shouldn't surprise any of us. It was nice to just sit down at home in the backyard and do nothing. Of course, uh, when I say do nothing, it means I didn't do any economic activity. I was all obviously having um, uh, a great time with my family, my two little children. Um, and um, what I realized is that sometimes when you're sitting idle, doing nothing, that's when you get some really good thoughts and reflections. So yes, it was a nice break. And before I start, uh, we have a workshop coming up with Greg Smith. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of it, at least some of you who have been watching us on LinkedIn. Uh, so this workshop is where we talk about the dangers of safety bureaucracy and how it undermines our organizations, both from a business point of view, but also from a legal perspective. I think that's, that's the bit that is, uh, none of us are not uh, sure or clear about. So we spend so much time uh, and effort uh, streamlining our safety management systems, removing uh, the so-called unnecessary paperwork, uh, reducing the text on procedures, sometimes even sh- reducing the font size of the checklists uh, uh, to somehow uh, see how we can how we can uh, reduce uh, the administrative burden. But we spend very little time thinking strategically about how we can create a safety management system that serves uh, the well-being of our people, but also improves our business performance. Um, And uh, so this workshop does exactly that. And uh, believe it or not, we are almost 70% full. Uh, So if you're still thinking about booking a place, I would say don't wait too long uh, because... uh, Spaces are limited. Uh, today, in this episode of, of Embracing Differences, I had the opportunity to speak with Pam Boloski. Um, uh, well, we had a conversation just before I went on break. So it's been about a month now, but I can tell you something. Uh, uh, this is a, a very interesting discussion. In fact, uh, Pam is a wonderful person. Uh, I'm not sure if you know, but she's just won an award on her 2020 Professional Safety Article of the Year Award from American so- Society of Safety Professionals. Uh, the article she wrote is titled something like this, The Role of Leading and Lagging Indica- Indicators in OSH Performance Management. And it was published in the August 2020 edition of the Professional Safety Journal uh in fact pam received the first place award for this for this article and i want to congratulate her well done pam uh, by the way i've included a link to the article in this podcast i think it's pretty good so please check it out um, so uh to start with uh, pam is a senior program director with specialty technical consultants uh based in the u.s she is currently serving a three years term as an at-large member of the American Society of Safety Professionals Board of Directors. She is very well known, very well respected in the health and safety community, uh, a very influential speaker, and she has published uh, a lot of good work in the area of risk management, safety management system, uh, development and auditing, and uh, the OSHA compliance uh, uh, so uh, in today's podcast, uh, our initial focus uh, was on gender diversity uh, or the need of gender diversity in occupational health and safety, uh, which uh, is, is obviously missing. But then we realized during the course of the discussion that uh, we 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 ended up in a much wider debate around diversity in general Um So Pam talks about the problem with diversity in OHS and how and why the field uh, of of occupational health and safety lags behind and why women and also ethnic minorities haven't found themselves into leadership positions. Um, And towards the end, Pam shares her wisdom about what the future looks uh, for diversity and particularly for having women both in occupational health and safety roles, but also in higher up leadership positions. So I think you will enjoy this conversation. Uh, I did very much so. Maybe it would be a nice thing um, to, to hear a little bit about you, yourself, Pam. Um, yeah,
1: sure. Um, well, I, I've been uh, in the occupational safety and health profession for um, 26-ish years. Um, I started my professional career as a social worker. Um, I went uh, straight for undergraduate and graduate degree in social work. Um, about 15 years in, I, uh, I made the connection that it wasn't me. That was, it wasn't the organizations that I was working for. That was the problem. It was me, you know, I did a lot of job hopping and every time I would, uh, move to a new position, I would say, "Eh, I didn't like this. And eventually I realized it wasn't the organizations that I was working for. Uh, It was me. It was not the right fit for me. So I went back to school. And I actually got a degree in environmental science uh, and started working for a consulting organization. Um, and one day, the, one of the principals of the organization came to me and said, uh, we'd like you to lead the safety effort here at this company. And I said, well, why me? I don't, I don't know anything about safety. That's not my training. That's not my background. And he said, well, you're a quick learner. Um, we think you're pretty smart and we think you can figure it out. So we'd like you to do it. And I said, okay. And that was uh, 26, 27 years ago now. So that's kind of what I've done uh, most of my work in. So I'm completely self-taught. I don't have a degree in safety. Um, I do hold a certified safety professional designation. Um, but, but, but I sort of, like many people, my path into this profession was uh, not um, the typical route. I, I, and I, over the years, I've met a lot of people who, come into this field uh, from a variety of different paths. So uh, it is not uncommon for people to find their way into this field for a variety of different reasons. So that's how I got into the field. In the past probably 15 years or so, I've mostly done consulting uh, for other organizations um, around uh, management systems, uh, risk management systems, um, uh, and those kinds of arenas. Uh, So auditing and program development um, and and some things like that. Um, My current position is with a small consultancy called Safety uh, Specialty Technical Consultants. Uh, And we're based here in the U.S. Uh, There's about eight of us. Um, We do kind of high level safety consulting. Um, In the past, maybe, I don't know, five or six years, which is, I think, how we eventually got connected, I started to hear and read a lot about um, the profession and how we were maybe changing some of our mindsets about how we thought things should go. Uh, issues around compliance and people being uh, safety cops and safety officers and how that wasn't really a, um, a a successful strategy. And so I began to explore a little bit more about some of what what some people call the new view of safety, safety one and two. and some of those sort of emerging philosophies. Um, so that's really gotten me very excited and I've been making changes in the way I do things as an individual practitioner sort of based upon some of those concepts. Um, but one of the other things, which is what we're gonna talk about today, I think, um, is the idea of women in safety and women in this profession and um, how can we uh, identify the barriers and, uh, and advance a more inclusive uh, profession that uh, takes advantage of the unique and sometimes uh, different characteristics or strengths that women or under other underrepresented populations bring to the profession. So diversifying the profession uh, to make it stronger. Um, and that's uh, something else that I've been doing a lot of work in lately and really investigating and, and uh, exploring. Great. And And we will get to that. And my my, my question really
0: to you would be, what, what inspired you or motivated you to, to take this journey? But even before we get there, I was just listening to you to the opening sentence that you made, which was that um, whenever you found yourself uh, in a position where you didn't like the job, um, you always felt that it was you who was the problem, not the organization. And I feel... How many of us actually think that way? It's so easy to point fingers at everyone else, mm-hmm. and I'm increasingly coming to understand, even in this, you know, this is so-called systems thinking. Uh, it is so important to to look at our own selves before we even want to think about changing the outside world. It, 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 I can't agree with you more, Pam, along the lines of what you said. Um, I just wanted to make a comment there. I just found that that was
1: a very insightful thing, what you said. One of the things that I've, uh, you know, again, I've really uh, learned to appreciate is um, as leaders, as leaders in this space, um, sometimes we get frustrated when things don't go the way we think they should go, when workers don't respond the way we think they should respond. And we have this tendency to look outward to the worker and try to figure out what they're doing and how we can make them do what we want them to do. But we don't do that introspective work, to to think about what we might be doing that is hindering uh, our success or our engagement with the workers. Um, and, and that, I think, that was, you know, those aha moments that you have in your life. I think that was kind of, as I began to read more and more about it, um, I, I had that aha moment and said, it, maybe it is me, <laughs> maybe it's not uh, the workers, maybe it's not the organization, maybe it is me, and maybe I need to shift and change and rethink what
0: I do. Absolutely. And if we look at some of the Eastern philosophies, uh, they, we, we always, uh, you know, in the Western world, we have a tendency to look at things from cause to effect. But we don't realize that an effect also has an influence on the cause. And, you know, that's how the cycle completes so it's very interesting the way you put it um, but uh, in terms of uh, the topic for discussion i'm 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 so i'm so pleased that you took this topic i have never uh, engaged in this topic before although i claim to 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 host a podcast called embracing differences what was your motivation to 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 start this looking into this this aspect of, of work and maybe we can
1: begin from there mm-hmm. I think um, as part of that exploration that I was talking about, looking at different ways that we work and looking at different ways in which organizations function um, and just reading more and more as a as a woman in a male, predominantly male field, um, you know, I just really began to think about my career and things that I've seen and changed. And now that I'm in sort of the later years of my career, you know, I'm 62. I've been at this for a while. Um, I feel like I'm in a unique place where I have some credibility um, and some experiences that I can use uh, in a more uh, productive way. And and again, so it's uh, not just looking at me and what I can get for myself, but looking outward uh, now to say, what can I use uh, to benefit others uh, under underrepresented groups? But, you know, again, for me as a female, that's my space and so i don't really have agency so much with under other underrepresented groups but but certainly that's a critical part of what we're talking about today it's that uh, diversity and better representation in the profession Um, i I generally tend to stick with the the part of the discussion around women because that's what i know Um, but i would also want to make the point that it's critical that that we think about it more broadly uh, as, as professionals and how we can make that happen. Absolutely. So I'm hoping to use some of my, I'm sorry, I'm just hoping to use some of my, uh, experiences and some of what influence I might have, uh, to, to, to lead some changes. Uh,
0: No, absolutely. And even before we get there, my, my question really to you was any personal stories, uh, any, any personal experiences that, 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 uh, Triggered the motivation to look in this
1: direction. I think um, as I, as I, again, as I get toward the later years of my career, as I spent some time sort of reflecting back on uh, where I started and and where I am, um, part of me was uh, frustrated by not seeing the kinds of changes that I'd hoped we might see by now. Um, I mean, if you look at some of the economic disparities between uh, uh, just between women and men, or or underrepresented groups, um, and that how that economic disparity really influences people's uh, success and their ability to control their lives, you know that's a real concern of mine. Um, uh, the World Economic Forum, the last time I looked, said that uh, it would take 136 years at the current pace. To achieve uh, global equity uh, uh, in economics, um, so obviously that includes third world countries that are, you know, certainly light years different than what you and I live in. But that number is—I I, I, know—I won't be around to see it, and that really was frustrating to me. Um, I, I, you know, I. I spent some time in my younger years being involved in some of the women's types of movements and the feminist uh, activities that went on. And, and, and I was hopeful and excited and really felt empowered. But now as I look back, I'm, I'm not sure we've made a whole lot of progress. And so I think the impetus for me was how can I best spend the rest of my career um, to, to sort of leave a legacy behind or to try to make a difference in some way. Um, I, I, you know, the first couple of years of my career and I was still already because I'd switched careers. I was in my mid thirties by that point. Um, but I started training, uh, like a lot of, uh, safety professionals do. And, and I was doing some training at a steel mill. Um, and I was training Millwrights and uh, engineers and other kinds of craft uh, folks. And here I was, you know, maybe a year or two uh, post degree. And the folks in the room were, I don't know, maybe uh, 25, 30 years experience. And there was a perception, um, you know, there was the arms crossed in front of me, and you can't tell me anything. I know my job. And That was an aha moment for me because I thought, well, no, I don't know how to do your job. This is my first time in a steel mill ever. I don't, I mean, I know and I understand how it works, but so my approach at that point was, no, I don't know how to do your job, but I do know how to make your job safer. And so can we partner, can we get together and put our heads together and find ways to make your job safer. I can give you some ideas, you can share with me how it works, how you'd like it to work, and maybe between the two of us, we can sort of do that partnership. And that's kind of the way I've always approached it all along is, you know, I'm not the person who knows it all, I'm the partner um, with you, and we can work together to, to make these kinds of changes that you need them to make. So I still have a memory of standing in front of that group of uh they were all at that point they were all men um with their faces looking at me like who are you and what the heck are you going to teach me today um and, and i was able to win them over by by using that approach and, and that's kind of the approach that i've used over the years indeed and and you're so right uh, there is
0: there is power in, in being vulnerable but there's also power in 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 asking questions isn't it um uh People with, with lots of experience, lots of knowledge uh, kind of uh, enjoy uh, uh, being being asked questions about what they have learned over the years. Uh, and, and sad mm-hmm. enough, there are not many opportunities in many organizations where people can actually uh, share their knowledge. Share their, I know it sounds very obvious, but one of the difficulties I've seen is that there are not many opportunities where people can come together and share their knowledge and experiences. It's so for you to actually go to someone and say, you know, how can I make your job easier? Maybe you can help me understand what is it that you do, or even you help me understand how can we improve it. it you, It's a very different conversation from the normal conversations in a male oriented society.
1: Yes, it, it absolutely is. It is a collaborative team approach. Um, I think you hear a lot these days about learning organizations and uh, what makes them work, and and the effectiveness of it, and and that really is a very collaborative approach. And and it may not be what we typically know from uh, uh, people who lead organizations, who to this point generally tend to be more males than females. Um, and so that kind of way of working with groups of people uh, is is a style that I can bring. Um, and and as that leadership style is more successful, then perhaps others might want to learn or mimic that style. Um, what I'd like to see eventually, uh, you know, if I if I could create the world today, it would be that we wouldn't think about leaders having sort of masculine characteristics or feminine characteristics, but we would think of them as leadership characteristics and. Um, I, I did a lot of collaboration in preparation for this particular um, getting ready for to record this podcast. And I reached out to a lot of uh, uh, females that I know who are doing really good work. And I asked them, you know, what would you want to talk about? And and one of the women who responded said, I don't really fit into the sort of male characteristics. Uh, the men in my organization, I'm not quite like them, but I'm not really like the women in my organization either. and. And she said, who am I? Where do I fit? And so her imagining of a future state is I fit where I am because of who I am and my unique blend and what I bring to the organization. And so what I hope comes of some of these transitions that we're seeing is that we begin to discard the idea that this is a masculine leadership trait and this is a feminine leadership trait. And we just start thinking of them as leadership traits. We, everybody brings something to the table. But, but certainly collaboration and team building are um, gathering steam. And, and, and I think that's a good thing because, as you say, um, many times workers don't have the advantage of being asked, what do you think? How would you do this better? Why isn't this working? What can I do to make your job better? What are the things that make you feel uncomfortable about doing this job? If, if something goes wrong today, really badly wrong, what is it and how can we keep that from happening? Uh, th- that doesn't happen a lot in organizations, although I believe we're starting to see some momentum, some wheels under the bus, if you will. Uh, more and more organizations are looking at that as a more uh, appropriate approach.
0: Indeed, and the, you, you bring a very interesting dimension to it because um... If I, what I'm hearing is th- that essentially uh, organizations have always, I mean, at least leaders have always thought thought of themselves as being in the position of control. Now, you have to control people. You have to control the system, and that's what your job is as a leader. So, and, and safety management, like every other function in the organization, is a reflection of how people at the top think work should be done, which is work should be controlled. And I think we are increasingly moving away from the idea of control at least when it comes to to, the, to, to, to frontline operations, to, to, uh, to creating support. Uh, to, so how can we support people in the frontline position? Not, not control them, but support them. And that fundamentally changes uh, the idea of how we interact with people. So instead of saying to them uh, that uh, you should be doing this or that, uh, we start to ask them, what is it that works for you in this or that situation? And that we can do more of that. And I think mm-hmm. if if nothing else, mm-hmm. the pandemic has has reinforced this idea that uh, well we were you know there's there's always used to be that uncertainty nobody knows what lies ahead but I think we are increasingly coming to terms with the idea that we do not have all the knowledge about what lies ahead and the least we can do is ask people to to tell us uh, you know what they think would work or not so that we can do more of that. So going from a control to a more support-oriented position, I think that's, that's the kind of transformation I'm seeing in leadership today, uh, Pam.
1: And I, and I think going to, to your point about the pandemic, and I think that's very well taken, one of the things that we saw organizations do that were more successful was they pivoted quickly. But they pivoted because they set their workers free, empowered them to innovate and retrofit and do things differently. Because so many things were changing so rapidly, the idea of control went by the wayside because we couldn't control the pandemic uh, as an individual organization or as an individual leader in an organization. We had to give up that control. And the places where we put that control were back to the workers. And organizations who saw great success by giving them that power are the ones that I hope, as we begin to to move into a post-pandemic world, will say, hey, that really worked. I don't want to go back to where we were before. Um, I, I listened to a, a, a podcast or a, a presentation Todd Conklin did and he talked about the idea of not bouncing back as organizations, but bouncing forward as organizations, taking the things we learned and applying them to how we now function as an organization. Uh, and, and I'm I'm hopeful that as we begin to move in that direction, we'll see more and more of that uh, and more organizations will adopt that mindset. Absolutely,
0: and in that context, I would like you to help me understand how you see gender diversity as a strength within the organization. Maybe some thoughts on that would be very helpful, Pam.
1: Well, I think that um, I think that well, there's there's research and studies and and lots of different articles out there that talk about the profitability of uh, diverse organizations, and they do tend to be more profitable. Um, Organizations that embrace different types of leadership and uh, provide pathways for uh, qualified people, regardless of uh, gender or other diversity characteristics, and provide opportunities, uh, generally tend to have uh, a workforce that's happier, uh, is more interested and more loyal uh, to the organization because they see a path for themselves. Um, When you don't see that path uh, as, as a female or an underrepresented group, Um, you tend to get disappointed or distracted, or uh, you begin to look around for another place where you can go. So I think that there's uh, ample evidence that organizations with diverse workforces and diverse leadership teams uh, tend to do much better. Um, And again, the different characteristics of leaders, whether you're a decision-making leader or a collaborative sort of consensus building leader, Um, There's a place for both of those types of leaders in all organizations, and in fact, I think there's probably a place for each leader to adopt different sets of characteristics for different circumstances. Uh, The pandemic provides another good example. In, In the early days of the pandemic, organizations had to move quickly to decide whether to open or close. And so those kinds of decisions had to be made quickly without a lot of input. So leaders who were able to take limited information and make a decision probably helped their organizations through that initial hump. But then back to what we were just talking about, organizations who were able to survive and thrive in the pandemic were ones who then pivoted towards a more collaborative type of circumstance. And I think um, what we generally tend to see are that collaborative leaders uh, tend to be more likely to be in underrepresented groups. Um, And and that just seems to be what we see in some of the the research and the studies that are out there. So organizations in the pandemic and outside of the pandemic seem to have benefited from having that diverse group. Um, And and people are more productive when they're happy at work, when they feel fulfilled, when they feel recognized Um, and Uh, An organization that is able to demonstrate that, I think, is in a much better position to thrive, uh, pandemic or not, uh, in all types of scenarios and circumstances.
0: Excellent. Uh, There's a lot to think about here, but uh, um, I'm just wondering as you're speaking, Pam, uh, what is the uniqueness of, of diversity, be it gender diversity, ethnic diversity, or any form of diversity, um, it's, uh, what is the uniqueness of it that 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 you value the most? You know, when when you see it really working, what is secret sauce there in your view?
1: <laughs> I'm not sure I know the answer to the secret sauce, but 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 one sort of quick side point before I answer that. It, and when we talk about diversity, um, there are two points that I always make when we talk about diversity. First of all, uh, we're not just talking about demographic diversity. The the things you see. Uh, outward appearances. We're also talking about diversity of thinking and experiences. Uh, And and those are all an important part of diversity. Uh, The second part of it is that this is a transition and a transformation, not um, an opportunity to uh, kick out uh, the people who are currently running organizations. So there is room for everybody. I I, I, uh, have a... um, a little poster here in my uh, office that says, um, more opportunities for me doesn't mean less opportunities for you. It's not pie. You know, if I get a bigger piece of the pie, you don't get a smaller, this is not what we're talking about here. So I think it's really important because there are important values for leaders who are currently in place versus leaders that we're bringing up into an organization. But the benefit of a diverse Uh, organization in leadership and in the workforce, among all of the different characteristics, um, allows for opportunities for people to do their best, to be who they are, their sort of authentic self, to be um, uh, uh, enabled to be vulnerable, to take chances um, and to explore. And when an organization has that type of mindset, Um, I believe people produce better. People are more uh, interested in the type of work that they do. Uh, They're they're more likely to be productive members of the organization. And so uh, all ships rise when we all feel like we're valued and the organization supports us from a strategic and from how the organization is set up. And that the organization is always looking for ways to improve always looking to identify barriers that might be hindering the progress of any group within the organization and finding ways to identify them and remove them as an organization Um, you know as management systems people we talk about continuous improvement uh, and that's what it is it's continuous improvement of the organization and that openness and willingness uh, even of the existing leaders to be vulnerable to say you know, maybe we didn't have it quite right all along. Let's look at how we can change. That willingness to be vulnerable um, is something that really uh, generates community, that really makes us feel like we want to get to know that person because they're willing to share that part of themselves with us. And I think that that helps strengthen the organization overall
0: indeed uh, yeah, a very personal story comes to mind pam um, many years ago uh, i'm talking about 2009 and, and or 8 maybe when i i was still in the middle of my phd and i took a trip to india where i collected a lot of data from and uh, i was sitting in, a, in in with mariners of 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 uh, all sort of experiences and ranks and i can never forget we, we were talking about ships collisions and one of the least experienced uh, members in the group, he, he, he raised his hand and he said that, I have a question. I said that, why do ships ever collide? And and uh, he just looked at everyone and he said that ships being made of steel, why is it even possible for two ships to even come together if we, if we innovated something along those lines? And everyone just laughed at him in the room. But I, I, <laughs> I still can't get mm-hmm. over it. I, I can never get over it to say what a clever thing to think about, isn't it? So he's he's using the principles of of, of physics and and magnetic forces uh, to to and applied in a very constructive way. I think the point I'm trying to make is that I think this diversity is actually all about challenging our assumptions of the world, and and the richer mm-hmm. uh, uh, the diversity, the more we crack into these everyday assumptions, and uh, and. And you're so right. It's not so much about the, the ethnic diversity or the gender diversity. It is really about, uh, some people call it cognitive diversity. Others, say call it uh, diversity of thinking or diversity of perspectives. And I also liked what you said uh, about diversity of experiences. In the, in the maritime world, we have another problem, which is that the same person who would think one way uh, or the other, uh, whilst he's being a seafarer or she's being a seafarer, um, from the time they are a seafarer to the time they, they move to the office to, 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 to take another position, their view about the world changes 180 degrees completely. Same person with the same thinking, mm-hmm. the same background, mm-hmm. experiences, values. But the moment your goals and targets change, it influences your, your thinking also completely. And that has, seems to have a very, very yes. uh, um, strong influence on, on your way of thinking.
1: Absolutely, and and you know the diversity of experiences is what makes a more rounded member of the organization. Um, you know there are different kinds of professions that regularly move people around. So here in the United States, the military uh, is constantly reassigning its forces to different places, deploying them here, bringing them back, uh, and, and so. that concept of that diversity of experiences strengthens that person's ability to um, contribute to the organization uh, is really sort of the underpinning of that. And the more experiences you have, the better you are. But the experiences aren't the only thing. The ability of the organization to uh, want to hear about the experiences, as in your example, that person who was pretty smart, but also pretty brave to ask a very simple question and to put themselves out there to be vulnerable to be laughed at for asking a simple question. So either that organization was pretty supportive of that or that was just one brave person. But, but an important thing that I've learned over the years is uh, the willingness to be vulnerable and the willingness to get out of my comfort zone Um, has really provided me with some of the best growth experiences that I've been able to have. Um, I I just left uh, a three-year position as a board of directors with the American Society of Safety Professionals. Uh, And when I first decided to run, it's an elected office, when I first decided to run, prior to that, I'd always thought to myself, oh, no, I'm not going to run. What if I lose? I mean, that would be terrible. I'd be so embarrassed. I just, I couldn't possibly do that. Um, But for whatever reason, and again, I I talked to a number of people who convinced me it was worth to be, to take that risk. And I did, and I was successful in the election. Now, fast forward a couple of years later, and in the most recent election, I had run again for a different uh, position on what's, we consider our executive committee. So it would be senior vice president and eventually president of the organization. And I remember having the same um, uh, nerves about taking that risk and putting myself out there. And what if I lose? And in talking to people, I was convinced to take that risk. Well, guess what? I lost. I I lost. And I I, um, I felt really bad for myself for probably a week or two and then I, you know, began to 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 put it in perspective and realize that, you know, I took the chance. I, I wasn't successful. It, it it is what it is, and you know, what else can I do next? And how else could I move on? And and that was ironically where I started to think about how can I use my influence as a woman in this profession now? And that's where I'm starting to really explore how I can begin to do that. So that risk, that was not successful sort of led to a different path for me. Um, And and I think that's probably typical of most people's careers. But I will tell you, you know, in my experience, and part of this is anecdotal, but part of it I think is also um, supported is that women are a little bit more inclined to play it safe when it comes to their professional career. They may be more than happy to be vulnerable with their social friends, but with their professional friends and their professional network, they tend to be a little bit less likely to do that. You know, if, if I don't meet all of the expectations of this particular job description, I'm not going to apply because I I'm everything except this one little thing, but this one little thing, and I'm just not going to do that. Um, and maybe it's partly the way, uh, women have historically been raised to play it safe, to not take chances. Uh, maybe it's the way organizations and the systems treat women who fail um, or, or how they perceive how they're being treated. Whatever it is, women generally tend, to, I, in my experience, to be a little bit less willing to take big risks. And so one of the things that I'm exploring and, and interested in is how can we support women in an organization and as individuals to take those big risks, to feel more comfortable, to be vulnerable, um, and to use that risk-taking behavior to advance their career. Um, and I think there are lots of things that we can do. Uh, but you know that vulnerability in a professional sense, I think, is something that women um, uh, generally are less likely to explore. Um, and so my experience in taking that risk is is one that I like to share because I think about how scared I was to run for that office the first time um, because I was concerned that I'd be embarrassed if I lost. And that was really what held me back. What would people think of me if I lost? I was really concerned about that. Uh, and I had to overcome that.
0: Well, I'm just thinking, uh, what a,
1: its it's so different from what
0: I've been thinking so far. I always felt before this podcast that, Women are much more vulnerable than men are, and they are much more open to 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 accepting their weaknesses. Uh, but from from what I'm hearing, from what you're saying, is that maybe that's not the case, and and you're so right. Uh, uh, well, I've had this problem for many years, Pam, but uh, but. Isn't, isn't that the notion, the, the, the public perception, at least, around vulnerability, that, that uh, you know, women are actually more vulnerable than men? That's, that's how we understand it so far. But what you're saying is a little bit different here, isn't it?
1: I think it is a public perception. I think it is one that is um, sort of ingrained into women as they grow up. Um, uh, for example, you know, I, I already said I started my career as a social worker. Um, and when I was in high school and thinking about my career, I, I knew I was going to go on to college. And my father always thought that I should be an engineer. I love math. I love science. I did well in those. but I, And I don't know why, but I didn't feel comfortable with that. We had a guidance counselor who was somebody who um, would work with people to help them sort of figure out what school should you go to and what career, who was extremely prejudiced, and I'll, I'll say this openly and honestly, around more feminine occupations. And she was the one that steered me towards social work. And I I sometimes think to myself, if I had followed some of the inclinations that my father had suggested, what a different career in life I might have had. Now, I, I don't regret what I did and how my career has turned out. But it's just interesting to think about that that weakness that willingness to take a chance um that I as an 18 year old many many years ago I wasn't willing to do and I I do think that women are more focused on their weaknesses than on their strengths um and and again underrepresented groups in general we tend to push uh to focus on their their weaknesses rather than their strengths um, so so let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, mentoring is a tried and true technique, a strategy for people for professional development, right? And uh, it's a very effective one and it works very well. But mentoring is based upon the assumption that you as a growing professional have skill deficits or experience deficits that the mentor is there to help guide you so that you can improve so that you can be ready for that next step. And I think that's important. But what about the person who's ready for that next step? Doesn't need to be mentored. What they need are opportunities to jump into that next step. What they need is a sponsor that model, that strategy of somebody who may be sitting at the table when a big new project team is being discussed and names of people who are being considered for that project team are being thrown out. And the sponsor says, this person is ready and I highly recommend them for this opportunity. So the difference is you have to fix yourself to be more ready versus you're ready and somebody just has to bring you into the table. And there you can then use your readiness to excel so i think women tend to be pushed more into mentorship as the solution to their professional development when i think both models work at different points in people's career there are times when you do need skill development and there are times when you need opportunity development and both of those are important Um, and so that's the way that i think one of the ways that i think we help vulnerable women or women be more willing to be vulnerable, um, we kind of give them that push and that uh, you're ready for this and you can do this um, and bring them into that kind of experience, support them and let them show that they can do it. And again, those models work well for all kinds of underrepresented populations.
0: Absolutely. And uh, and very, very powerful uh, uh, words, Pam. Uh, and it's so true that all this has to be, all this basic infrastructure, this basic thinking has to be put in place right at the start of your career, because there's nothing, you are at, you know, those those micro experiments where you did something good and the organization or, or the leader above acknowledges that, sets you into that positive spiral, that never ending positive spiral. And then what you're saying is that if 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 the leadership's view is that you as an employee as as, as a woman employee or, or an ethnic minority you are not complete you're not perfect and this is what you need to do to get to the next level i think that sets you into a negative spiral all the time it's it's it's
1: such a such a powerful way of thinking actually
0: about mentorship, mentorship. yes it's absolutely. a different
1: focus. It's a different focus. It's, you know, let's focus on your strengths and how can we use them and build on them? And you're right, when you start your career, um, it it sets you down a different path than a person who is acknowledged for their strengths. Um, Even in things like pay equity, I mean, organizations who have really been honest and really looked at their hiring and their pay structures and their recruitment strategies, find all kinds of barriers um, for women and underrepresented groups. I read an article in an online magazine called Fast Company, and they were talking about they had interviewed a woman who does a lot of work in this space, and she was talking about an organization that was looking at pay differences between people who were doing the same job. And they said, well, this is a problem. Um, and we have to fix this problem, but if we just bring everybody up to the same salary, we don't fix the reason why this disparity occurred in the first place. So they did a little bit of digging and they found a number of things, but one that struck me was that the people who did the recruitment and the hiring had sort of unconscious biases towards uh, particular universities and particular degrees from the university. So I might have the same degree from uh, a college that maybe is not as well known And you may have one from one that's much more well-known and probably much more expensive and much more difficult to get into. And so I'm paid more when I join the organization than you. Same job, same job description, same degree, but the difference was the university where you got the degree. And so when they began to really look critically at uh, how are we creating barriers what can, it's our responsibility as an organization to identify these barriers, it's not the individual person's responsibility to identify the barriers, it's ours. And we need to figure out a way to identify those barriers and create opportunities that are more even uh, even handled. Um, And so uh, that was an example that really struck me, that the organization really took a deep look at um, how they were creating disparity. Not intentionally, good, well-meaning people uh, but they were creating disparity within the organization. Well, well, um, you know, another example that... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, there's another really interesting example that was in that particular article. Um, you know, people who want to be part of top-notch orchestras um, go through a very rigorous audition process, and at least part of that audition process is playing their instrument in front of people. And over the years, these organizations have learned to... And, and have learned to appreciate that that audition should take place behind a screen. So that when I'm one of the person who's listening to you, I have no idea of anything about your uh, gender or any other diversity characteristic. I'm just listening to how you play. And so that, that screen that you're playing behind is a way of adjusting that barrier. And so there are ways to do that within organizations. Um, where we take away those characteristics that allow us to really look at the skill set and not the characteristics of the person. Pam, I'm
0: smiling because uh, the book that comes, to there's there's several books that come to mind, but one is a book called Mismanagement of Talent by Professor Phil Brown, who happened to be my PhD supervisor. He talks about the difficulties of social mobility uh, when you come from a particular class and, and how, if you look at Big organizations mm-hmm. like McKinsey's and and all those big names, how uh, uh, how uh, a certain uh, a group of elite universities and colleges uh, produces and reproduces class all the time to fill in those positions in in mm-hmm. those and, and then supported you know the, 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 again it becomes a very spiral kind of a movement because uh, that 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 network then promotes people from within the same network and then on it grows exponentially. But I'm also thinking that it is so far away from the idea of meritocracy, which is you know, the coming of post-industrial society, which was Daniel Bell's vision of the United States, the whole idea of knowledge economy, that you know people will be rewarded based on their performance, based on their, their knowledge and, and, and what they add to the, to the organization and not so much to, their, to the social classes. Uh, and where are we? We're in the 21st century, and we're still talking about these things, isn't it? It's so interesting what you say.
1: I know I know. and and I you know, I said earlier, um, as somebody who's been in the space of of uh, women equity for women and inclusion for women in a, for a long, long time, um, the progress or lack of uh, is, is a little disconcerting. Well, no, it's a lot disconcerting. it's it's frustrating. Um, and, and it's um it, it's something that I would like through, you know, having the opportunity to talk about this with you. Uh, and and other opportunities, it's something that I really feel uh, compelled to do. I I really feel it's a responsibility that I owe to uh, other folks in my profession where I might have some influence, Uh, and I I intend to try to use that to the best of my ability.
0: And you articulated it so well, and and, you know what I'm taking away from this conversation is much more than just, uh, you know, we talked about the role of women, but I think what you talk about is a much broader understanding of what meritocracy actually means in the organization, which is to embrace diversity in every form. Um, If you truly want to create an organization that is about high performance, uh, it's about uh, aligning productivity with well-being of people. Um, There's so much to think, Pam, uh, but uh, I'm just conscious that we are coming at the end of this conversation, this beautiful conversation. And how would you like to summarize this maybe and and maybe suggest uh, a way forward uh, as at the end of this, this uh, beautiful conversation.
1: I I think I would make two points. Um, The first point is that the, the, the shift in thinking of who's responsible is really critical. I'm not dismissing an individual person's responsibility for their professional career and their role in creating the career that they want and taking advantage of and looking for opportunities. That's very important. Uh, Whether you're a female or a male or or whatever, it doesn't really matter. You have some responsibility. But if the system uh, creates the barriers that doesn't allow the meritocracy to bloom within the organization with you as an individual, then the system has to be the one to make the change. And status quo is no longer acceptable. And as 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 professionals, um, we need to be working within the systems to make those changes, much like we're seeing with some of the changes, uh, the system's view of safety. Now we're talking about the system's view of diversity and inclusion. It's the same concepts, the same um, strategies are, are important. Um, And so I think that that really, really needs to happen. And then the second piece is that I think um, as we approach leaders uh, about this, we have to be ready with our messages and ready with our discussion points or elevator speeches as sometimes people call them. Um, Because when you approach a leader with a need to change, you have to make a compelling reason for why change needs to take place. And so Because if that organization's leader is going to lead change, uh, it's going to create a lot of discomfort for a lot of people because nobody likes change. And so as as folks who may be taking that message to the senior leaders in our organizations or other organizations, we have to be ready with those messages. We have to uh, understand what the questions are going to be. We have to be ready with answers. And we have to be ready with strategies and tactics That an organization can employ. So, some of the examples that we've been talking about here in this discussion, we have to be ready to say, This is how we're doing it. This is creating a barrier. How about if we try this? Otherwise, we're just, um, you know, we're, um, to use a a kind of an unusual phrase, we're kind of spitting into the wind, right? We think it's important. Yes, we must change. But unless we can really um, be part of the organization and work within the organization, we're really just talking about, this is a great thing. This is something that's important to do, but nothing's going to come of it. And so I I just encourage all of us as as leaders in our profession to appreciate what embracing diversity and inclusion uh, does for our organizations. At the end of the day, a better organization creates a better opportunity for people to do their job and do it without harm. And, And that's what we're trying to do.
0: Very interesting, uh, and this has been a frustration for most people. I would say uh, that uh, the organization or the senior leaders don't listen to us, and I think what you're saying is absolutely right. How much attempt have been made to make our communication as simple as possible, or as 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 clear as possible for those leaders to actually understand that? And I think. Part of the problem at least in the safety profession is that we don't have a holistic understanding of how the organization functions we have a very siloed view of our, and i think we are in a in a, in a very unique position in many ways because if we wanted to nothing stops us from understanding the full organization and it is that understanding of, of of the entirety of the organization that that the leaders are looking for in order for you to make any sort of change so i think that there is some mm-hmm. some a, a, there is an opportunity there to, to approach it uh, from even from a safety perspective, to, to put a strong case for diversity and inclusion in a way that the management gets it and gets it really well in their own view or in their own language.
1: Yes, oh, I absolutely agree. The parallels are definitely there. It is a systems approach. And uh, we can apply those concepts of systems uh, safety to diversity and inclusion. They, they work both ways. But we have to be clear on our message. And we can't just say it's the right thing to do. Uh, we have to be a little bit more clearer than that.
0: That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's a really nice way to summarize it. Yes, we, we, we have to have a clarity of purpose. And that's what leaders are looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Is there anything you would like to say as, as final words, Pam? Uh,
1: no, other than just, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, you know amplify this message, to have this conversation with you. I, 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 I'm so glad that you are open to these kinds of conversations uh, because this is really how change happens. Um, and and I'm, I'm really grateful that you gave me the opportunity to talk with you today.
0: Likewise, the feeling is mutual. I'm glad we, we, we found some time together. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and if it has made you slow down, think, and reflect, then I have achieved my purpose. The idea of embracing differences is to open up our minds to different perspectives and possibilities so that we can learn from more than what we knew yesterday. I wish to remind all my fellow listeners that all my podcasts and related reference material is available on my website, novellas.solutions. I actually spend a lot of time thinking and researching about the topics of my podcasts. So if you want to learn about something new, please reach out to me. I will do my very best to create something that is meaningful to you. Alternatively, if you would like to do a podcast with me, please drop me a line at novellas.solutions. or you can even reach out to me on my LinkedIn account. For more than 10 years, my research has been deeply centered on understanding the extent to which organizations view incidents and accidents as an opportunity for learning and change. Personally speaking, I cannot think of a more powerful way to bring meaningful change in our organizations. I know it sounds simple, but most organizations struggle with extracting meaningful learning from accidents and incidents. If you wish to learn more about incident investigations, You can subscribe to my weekly newsletters on my website, novellas.solutions. If you wish to reach out to me, uh, you can drop me a line at novellas.solutions Or again, you can find me on LinkedIn. Thank you and see you next time.